1: Live from our nation's capital, this is Bloomberg Sound Off.
0: Talking about a huge issue here is investment in marginalized communities.
2: They want to deconstruct this package and cherry pick what they like and what they don't like.
0: China is surging forward with major investments. Bloomberg
1: Sound On, the insiders, the influencers, the insights.
0: Biden has promised again and again that he will unite the country. Who do you think Biden has to watch in terms of moderate defectors? Infrastructure has always been
3: bipartisan. Bloomberg Sound On, on Bloomberg Radio.
4: I'm Jack Fitzpatrick. Coming up on the show today, we've got former ambassador to Israel Daniel Kurtzer coming on. We're going to have to talk to him about everything happening in Israel with uh, apparently outgoing Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu. We've got Kevin Walling joining us. He's a Democratic strategist at HG Creative Media. And of course, old reliable Rick Davis, Bloomberg politics contributor, is with us for us talking about everything happening in Israel, the latest on infrastructure and tax negotiations, a whole lot to talk about, actually, on foreign policy and President Biden's plan to block investments in 59 companies with ties to the Chinese military. But before we dive headfirst into everything I just listed, let's get a market
1: update from Charlie right. Pellett. Thank you very much. Jack is back, and here's what's going on. Lots of earnings after the bell. Broadcom, one of the world's largest chip makers, out with a bullish forecast for quarterly sales, signaling that corporations have returned to spending on their computer networks as they open up offices is up now by two-tenths of 1% after ours. Lululemon Athletica posting first-quarter sales and an outlook for the full year that beat expectations as the company saw a pickup in brick and mortar traffic along with strong online sales. CrowdStrike boosted its adjusted earnings-per-share forecast for the full year. The guidance beating the average analyst estimate shares up by 1.4%. Wall Street's focused very much on jobs. We get the jobs report 8.30 a.m. Wall Street time. Complete coverage right here on Bloomberg Radio. Ahead of that report, down Thursday, equities fell as investors digested a raft of economic data and a report President Biden may be open to a lower corporate tax rate than 28%. S&P down 15, drop of four-tenths of 1%. The Dow down 23, a drop of one-tenth of 1%. NASDAQ down 141, a drop there of 1%. Tenure yield 1.62%. I'm Charlie Pellett, that old reliable, and Jack is a Bloomberg Business Flash.
4: All right. Thank you, Charlie. I'm Jack Fitzpatrick, here with Bloomberg politics contributor Rick Davis, so insightful as he often is. Rick, I was excited to talk to you uh, about everything happening in Israel because of your knowledge on foreign policy issues, even before I knew that we were going to get a call today uh, in just a little bit from a former ambassador to Israel and actually a former ambassador to Egypt, Daniel Kurtzer. Uh, While we wait for him, Rick, let's run through the basics of what we know. Benjamin Netanyahu would be ousted as the prime minister of Israel under a deal struck by opposition leader, uh, mostly led by opposition leader Yair Lapid, uh, with a variety of other parties. And I should emphasize a real variety of other parties because under this deal, uh, assuming this gets a a successful vote uh, by the Knesset later on, the prime minister, next prime minister would be Naftali Bennett, uh, who actually by a lot of measures appears to be more of a, a nationalist, more of a, a farther right uh, member than Netanyahu himself. This is a person who opposes Palestinian statehood. Uh, he has pushed for uh, an annexation of portions of the West Bank. Now I believe we have Daniel Kurtzer joining us. Daniel, thank you so much for, for coming onto the show. Really wanted somebody who could get into the details here. Although i, I got to admit my first question on this is a bit simple. This whole process of a, a new majority, a new prime minister, this is subject to a vote. And it sounds like they've got a very slim majority in support of this. So d- just spell this out for me. Is this actually going to happen? Is this a, a, a glide path to having uh, a, having a new prime minister? Or is there any risk of this falling apart at this point?
3: Well, the good news uh, is that there are signed coalition agreements among these eight parties Uh, which, if uh, the Knesset, the Israeli parliament, endorses this uh, uh, set of agreement, would represent a new government. The questionable news is that uh, the Knesset vote might not take place for another 11 or 12 days, Mm -hmm. during which time uh, the current prime minister, Benjamin Netanyahu, will pull out all stops from his playbook to try to tear individuals away from especially the right-wing parties in this uh, potential coalition, and thereby deny them the majority in the Knesset. So it's certainly not over yet, but uh, uh, Netanyahu should be more worried today than any time in the past 12 years.
4: Sure. Now, from a a U.S. perspective, how do you anticipate the Biden administration approaches this, especially, you know, they've been in a, clearly a challenging position with everything that's happened with Israel and Palestine uh, previously, but knowing that the, the prime minister is, uh, I guess, Likely to be ousted and replaced, but I, I, I guess a, a strong opposition figure, uh, there seems to be a lot of uncertainty. How would you imagine the Biden administration approaches everything happening in Israel?
3: Well, they won't articulate it this way, but uh, there's going to be a real sigh of relief should this coalition, in fact, become the government. Uh, remember that President Biden spent eight years as vice president during the Obama administration when there was nothing but tension between President Obama and Prime Minister Netanyahu. Uh, Personal tension, political tension with Netanyahu courting the Republicans over the Democrats, Mm. working behind the President's back. So in one respect, uh, this will be an easier coalition to deal with uh, because the Israeli uh, parties are going to go out of their way to try to tell the Democrats that we love you, too, not just the Republicans. Hmm. On the other hand, on the two issues where there are substantive differences, Iran and the occupied territories, there will still be uh, challenges ahead, but probably a little bit easier for the, the uh, administration to handle.
4: Sure. Now, could you tell us, Ambassador, about a little bit of the history between uh, the U.S. and the relevant players here? Because I, I believe Secretary of State Antony Blinken, in his recent uh, trip to the Middle East, met with uh, Yair Lapid, uh, but not... Uh, Naftali Bennett. How much of a, a personal relationship is there, whether from the Secretary of, the, of State or the President uh, or, or anyone in the, high up in the U.S. government, with the new principal players in Israel?
3: Well, Blinken here to protocol. Uh, after all, Lapid had been given a mandate by the President of Israel to try to form a coalition, and therefore it was uh, acceptable for Blinken to meet with him. But I'm not aware that there are pre-existing relationships between uh, senior administration officials and almost anyone else in this uh, coalition that's emerging, except for the defense minister, Benny Gantz, who is the current defense minister and has been uh, in that role for the past uh, almost three years, uh, and our defense establishment. Uh, We probably don't know Bennett all that well. Uh, We certainly don't know some of the uh, leaders of the smaller parties, including the first time that an Israeli-Arab party has entered the coalition. Mm-hmm. So there's going to be a lot of uh, introductions necessary.
2: Ambassador, I was wondering if I could follow up on a point you were making uh, just a minute ago about Iran. Uh, does this give, if this government uh, sticks, and of course you, you point out that we have 12 days of uncertainty there, But if it does stick, um, uh, doesn't the dynamic here give the Biden administration an opening to try and work their will on a new Iran deal where uh, before Prime Minister Netanyahu was a real obstruction to that?
3: You know, I think that's true, uh, except for the fact that Iran is uh, on the eve of its own elections in the next couple of weeks. And the position of the Iranians in the negotiations in Vienna has hardened rather considerably. So on the one hand, one would think that this would be a more propitious time for the administration to cut the deal to go back into the nuclear accord uh, and uh, to try to deal then with the uh, aftermath of that uh, with the Israeli government. But we might not get to that uh, nuclear accord because of internal Iranian politics, which means this could drag on for some time.
4: Ambassador, I want to double back on on your characterization of uh, the U.S. probably uh, breathing a sigh of relief here. Uh, is there a reason, could you explain why uh, does the presence of Naftali Bennett Uh, as apparently the next prime minister for two years before Yair Lapid would uh, take over Uh, my understanding and I am a layman compared to you obviously on this my understanding is he's he's not too much of a moderate or how would you characterize uh, the stances of Bennett and and why why is he not going to make things more difficult for the US for the next two years in your opinion
3: Well, Bennett personally, and the members of his party, are actually further to the right, if we could call it that, uh, than Prime Minister Netanyahu. Uh, No interest in a two-state solution. Uh, Bennett has advocated for Palestinian autonomy, meaning they wouldn't get an independent state. Uh, So if Bennett were an independent actor here, uh, it would be a tougher moment for the administration. But this is a wall-to-wall coalition that includes uh, three parties way to the left of Bennett. The uh, Arab Party, Ra'am, uh The Meretz Party, which is a socialist party of sorts. And the Israeli Labor Party. As well as two other parties that are to his left, although more centrist. Meaning the Blue and White Party and Lapid's own uh, uh, party. So you have... Uh, this, this uh, strange combination of uh, parties with very different viewpoints that are going to constrain Bennett's independence of action just in order to keep the coalition together. And uh, for that reason alone, there may be some hope that it will be a moderating uh, impact on uh, Bennett's own tendencies.
2: Ambassador, it's nice to see that there's another country that has more complexity around their domestic political situation than maybe the U.S. does these days. Uh, I wanted to ask you about how this might impact the region. We saw in in the recent years uh, a lot of peace initiatives, the Abraham Accords, signed uh, throughout the region with Israel. Um, uh, Prime Minister Netanyahu made it his signature uh, initiative to open up relations with a lot of the Gulf uh, countries. Um, And then came the fight between them and Hamas uh, and and now the elections does this have a salutary effect on those new relationships in the region or do you see them uh, actually being part of the infrastructure now that can help hold all these things together
3: I think the the relationships with the Arab state uh, are pretty solid and they relate to Israel not so much to Netanyahu personally Uh, these were Four countries that were looking for a little bit of an anchor against uh, Iranian uh, aggressive activities in the region uh, they wanted access to Israeli high-tech and other benefits uh, intelligence and so forth that they could get from Israel so I don't think the change of government for Arab states is going to make uh, much of a difference right. uh, and frankly uh, and unfortunately I don't think it's going to make much of a difference with Palestinians where this recent war has taken such a toll that they're going to be very skeptical of any Israeli government, including this one.
4: Ambassador, thank you so much for joining us. That was Ambassador Daniel Kurtzer. I am Jack Fitzpatrick, here with Bloomberg Politics contributor Rick Davis. We're going to be joined by Kevin Walling, Democratic strategist at HG Creative Media talking about everything in foreign policy and infrastructure negotiations. Speaking of infrastructure and tax negotiations, earlier today, my colleague David Weston interviewed House Majority Whip Jim Clyburn, and they talked about the need for an infrastructure deal and whether Democrats are going to need to go it alone. Let's play the sound on that.
5: From your point of view, how are we doing on getting this infrastructure bill done?
6: Well, uh, we are still negotiating, and I don't blame Biden for uh, attempting to do that. Uh, I don't know whether or not he's making much progress, uh, but he ought to make the effort. He promised the American people that he would do what he could to reach across the aisle to try to do things in a bipartisan way, so he must give it his best effort. And I think the American people can see uh, if the other side is being a bit... uh, uh, let's just say reticent uh, in doing so. Uh,
5: most people who talk to us say that time's sort of a waste. So there will come a time, perhaps, when they have to either fish or cut bait. Uh, when is that time when the president may have to decide whether to go it without the Republicans or to go on, uh, or to stick with the bipartisan approach?
6: Well, I won't say we're wasting time. I might say we're running out of time. But I don't think it's ever a waste of time uh, to try to communicate. I believe very strongly uh, that we ought to keep the lines of communication open. But I don't think uh, we should uh, run the risk of not getting something done because the other side is not cooperating. And right now, uh, they are not cooperating, but Joe Biden knows that very well. He was there in 2009 as vice president when they did this song and dance uh, for Barack Obama and refused to give the man the kind of support uh, that he was deserving of. And Joe Biden suffered along with the rest of the people uh, in the country. He is not going uh, to allow that to happen again.
5: There has been a July 4 deadline talked about in order to get something done. Is that still operative, to use the word that is frequently Mm -hmm. used in Washington?
6: (laughs) Well, I don't know. Uh, I hate to put dates uh, on things. I think that uh, they've got people up there, they know their timetable much better than I do. They know what they're planning. To do. They know when they've got to do it. Uh, We're going to leave for the so-called August break uh, at the end uh, of July. And so I suspect uh, that the president would like to have something on his desk before he goes out in August.
5: We're talking about spending more money, federal government money. Let's talk about how we spent the last under the CARES Act, because I know that you are particularly involved in investigation of the Southern Corporation, uh, in which there are some developments now. You sent some letters to the Department of Defense and Department of Treasury. Tell us about that.
6: Well, uh, this so-called yellow corporation uh, has a very spotty record. Uh, They received a $700 million loan, uh, and it's very questionable. Uh, as to whether or not they were deserving of that loan. Uh, even uh, Secretary Mnuchin himself uh, said uh, that loan uh, had problems. But they gave it to them anyway. And we are looking to see whether or not fraud and abuse took place here. Because, not just because of this, uh, if you look at the history, the justice, uh, Department of Justice They've been suing them uh, for overcharging the Department of Defense over a period of seven years. And so if you look at a company with that record uh, and you look uh, at the application and you look see something a bit dubious and you do it anyway, then it says to me uh, that you're part and parcel of the problem. So the previous administration did not do a good job of vetting people or making sure uh, the CARES Act money was spent properly, and my select subcommittee has the responsibility of looking into all of these matters and making some determination as to whether or not uh, there's fraud and abuse taking place. And as I always say, we are trying to make sure that this money uh, is spent efficiently, effectively, and equitably. And I put fairness in that as well.
5: Uh, So, Congressman, if, in fact, your investigation turns out that that it was not given appropriately, there were perhaps misrepresentations made, is there any hope of recouping the $700 million?
6: Well, I'll leave it up to those people who are responsible for doing that. Our responsibility is to find the facts. When we get the facts, we will submit them to the proper authorities, Uh, and we'll see what happens. Uh, So I'm not going to get ahead of myself on this. I'm going to just continue to do uh, what we authorized to do, and then we'll see what the other agencies uh, that have uh, a different portfolio uh, do with the information.
5: Congressman, are there any other companies that are like the Southern Corporation at this point? <laughs>
6: yes, there are other companies. Uh, I won't make any announcements about them today, uh, but this is not the only one uh, by a long shot.
4: All right, that was Bloomberg's David Weston with an exclusive interview this morning with House Majority Whip James Clyburn with a little spin forward on maybe future investigations on where all the COVID money has gone. I am Jack Fitzpatrick. I'm here with Bloomberg Politics contributor Rick Davis, and joining us on the line now is Kevin Walling. He's a Democratic strategist at HG Creative Media and also a former Biden campaign surrogate. Now, Kevin, earlier we heard from Daniel Kurtzer, a former ambassador to Israel who explained everything we needed to know about Israel. And one thing that stood out to me, and I'm curious where what your expectations are uh, on this, is uh, the ambassador said, look, this is probably going to lead the US side, the Biden administration to breathe a sigh of relief, even though uh, the next prime minister would be, uh, by many accounts, more conservative or more nationalist, however you want to put it, than uh, Prime Minister Netanyahu. I'm, I'm curious, with all that in mind, with the uh, uncertainty about how the next few years look in Israel, what, what is your anticipation, how do you anticipate the Biden administration would approach everything there?
8: Yeah, Jack, Rick, uh, it's good to be back with you all. I, I really enjoyed the conversation with the former ambassador. Uh, and, you know, it's any question as to what will actually take place. You know, I, I certainly wouldn't count BB Netanyahu out. Uh, you know, he's clinging on for dear life. You know, he uh, vowed today, tonight to keep pushing against this agreement. But, you know, it's fascinating to me to see eight different political parties with the far left, the far right united, in this coalition, it's certainly going to be, I think, you know, very interesting dynamics with how the Biden administration will approach this new kind of, for lack of a better word, unity government uh, in, the, in the coming days and weeks. Uh, Jen Saki was asked about that today from the podium, and she kind of deferred and said, you know, we'll let the Israelis uh, decide for themselves in terms of the government going forward and kind of a hands-off approach. Uh, You know, obviously, the former guy, Donald Trump, would have likely uh, expressed his support uh, very clearly. Uh, So it's kind of a change in pace with the Biden administration taking kind of a backwards uh, look at what's going on in, in the state of Israel.
4: Yeah, uh, you're making a good point. I think the Biden administration clearly has to uh, try to play it safe and not swing wildly here. Now, I'm curious, Rick, what you made of this, the the anticipation that this, uh, as Kevin said, very diverse coalition, left, right and center, seemingly, uh, would have a moderating effect on the person who is supposed to be the next prime minister, Naftali Bennett, uh, who, who does not really want to see a, a two state solution. It's it sounds like. Do you buy the former ambassador's explanation that when you have such a broad coalition, that's going to be a moderating effect on him? Or, what, Rick, what are your expectations for the person who appears to be in line to be the next prime minister of Israel?
2: Yeah, this is uh, what Kevin said is true. This is MAGA meets AOC in the same coalition. How do you keep (laughs) that group together? I mean, that's more likely to start a fight than with Hamas. Um, So uh, Ben has got Ben has got a limited mandate. Right. I mean, he's got to keep a coalition together that's incredibly diverse uh, and he's going to do it in a, a free fire political exercise by uh former prime minister if they take uh over the the post uh BB Netanyahu he's not going to leave this alone and so the the challenge is going to be steep and it will probably have to have a moderating influence cuz Bennett is uh it, it arguably more conservative than BB Netanyahu but he rules a coalition with people who are diametrically opposed to many of those Netanyahu policies and so Um, you know, maybe it's a a moment in time where people will put their country interests ahead of their political interests. I think that's the notion around this coalition is that we can't keep having elections. They've had, you know, numerous elections over a short period of time, and it has not resulted in a positive domestic situation. So um, uh, we'll see how long this lasts. It wouldn't surprise me that they're going to wind up in elections again sometime soon. But uh, uh, in the meantime, it does, I think, give a break to the Biden administration. This was an unwelcome intrusion into their foreign policy strategy. They didn't want to have to deal with a a mini war in the Middle East. And so uh, if this can keep that from rearing up again, I think it'll be considered positive in Washington.
4: So let's broaden the scope a little bit on foreign policy. Rick, I'm, I'm curious what you're looking forward to in the next, uh, what is it, a week and a half from now. Uh, first were, we heard today that President Biden is going to meet with Turkish President Erdogan on June 14th during his uh, Europe trip. At the end of that, Biden is going to meet with Vladimir Putin. That news broke earlier. But today it came up that Biden does plan to raise this issue of hackers. That that may be operating out of Russia. It, recently, we we heard not only about the Colonial Pipeline hack, but the JBS meat processor hack. Uh, what is on your radar, Rick? Obviously, those are two big uh, news makers. How do, how do you think this goes? I, I can't imagine that that Europe trip on the whole, keeps things sort of quiet and uh, and and predictable for the Biden administration. What are you looking for holistically in in the next week and a half or so on foreign policy for Biden?
2: Yeah, I think in both those situations you just mentioned, um, you know, with Erdogan in Turkey and 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 and, and Vladimir Putin, they're going to have to find where the boundaries are because the last thing I think that this administration wants to do. Is is return to some kind of Cold War status with with the Russians and and potentially, uh, you know, get into a situation where they can't have a constructive dialogue in Turkey. Turkey is a member of NATO. Mm. We've had an enormous bad run with them. Uh, uh, most notable and sort of. uh uh, exemplified by uh uh, erdogan's last visit to washington where one of his bodyguards assaulted a protester i mean it's just really bad karma uh in the relationship with turkey and 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 yet as a regional ally it's really important that we find a way uh to deal with those guys on 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 the hack uh increased uh sanctions are on the table and and biden's going to have to deliver a very strong message to putin that um, that you know, this is now one of the top issues and he's going to have to wrestle it as a domestic issue because it's it's really uh, affecting the functioning of our infrastructure uh especially impacted by the colonial pipeline attack by dark side a russian-based hacking group so uh, I, th- I think this is going to be a fascinating month normally the summer's pretty right. quiet but not this summer
1: this is Bloomberg Sound On on
4: Bloomberg Radio. I'm Jack Fitzpatrick. It's a Thursday afternoon. I'm here with Rick Davis, Bloomberg politics contributor, and we've got Kevin Walling, Democratic strategist at HG Creative Media, on with us. We've got to talk about uh, the the person who seems to be the man of the hour uh, just about all the time. We've been talking so much about the centrality of Senator Joe Manchin, uh, Democrat of West Virginia, on infrastructure negotiations, on taxes. Have you guys seen this? Uh, this this became a little bit of a Twitter thing. It's a, a picture of what looks like a futuristic city with people flying around saying this is going to be West Virginia when uh, Democrats are done with all their earmarks that Joe Manchin gets. Um Rick, tell me about Joe Manchin, not only, though, on infrastructure and taxes, but I, I think he probably is going to play a, a central role on almost anything else Democrats want to do on on voting rights, et cetera. Uh, what, at, at what point does, do Democrats just crown Joe Manchin almost uh, the leader and the decider, the arbiter of what they're able to get done?
2: Yeah, I recall after the Georgia elections uh, where we realized for the first time we were going to have a 50-50 Senate. Um, everybody sort of pulled out their guidebook and discovered Joe Manchin as a senator from West Virginia <laughs> who really was you know, the most moderate-slash-conservative uh, uh, Democratic senator and realized that he was going to be the 51st vote on almost every major issue. And now we see it happening. We see his importance on the current debate. Even his uh, co-star from West Virginia, Shelley Moore Capito, is the lead negotiator for the, the Republicans. And uh, and without Joe Manchin's acquiescence, the Democrats can't move forward on a deal. And and the same on voting rights. I mean, he's been a stickler on the, the Democrats' very high-priority voting rights bill, a way to combat what's happening at the state level by the GOP. And they can't get him to budge and they can't move that bill without his support. Uh, with it, yeah, they get what they want. Uh, so... I think that, uh, that, that he's been very circumspect on you know, saying what he would and wouldn't be for until uh, the deal is cut, but uh, I can't imagine a more important person in Washington right now than uh, Senator Joe Manchin.
4: Well, and speaking of the the voting rights issue and how everything could hinge on Manchin on voting rights, uh, in addition to infrastructure, Kevin, I, I mean, voting rights doesn't seem like something that Democrats can do on their own anyway. Maybe there's frustration right now with Manchin saying we've got to have bipartisan talks on infrastructure because there's the assumption that Democrats could do a lot of that in a partisan way with the budget process, budget reconciliation. But I don't think they could really do much on voting Voting rights without bipartisan support. So, I, I, I mean, Kevin, do you do you see Manchin as the the central figure on that kind of thing, as he has been on a fiscal issue like infrastructure?
8: Absolutely, uh, Jack. And to Rick's point, is a good one. I mean, talk about a state delegation hitting above its weight between Joe Manchin and, and Shelley Moore Capito. From- from West Virginia, it harkens back to when Robert Byrd was the majority leader in every new building built in West Virginia. It was built by the feds, I think, for uh, decades. Um, but, you know, to, to your point, you know, it's a 50-50 split, obviously, with budget reconciliation on an infrastructure package if these talks uh, collapse. But you're absolutely right, you know, in, in terms of uh, S-1, H-R-1, the For the People Act that uh, addresses a lot of these concerns on the national level, level with voting rights. That's got to be uh, most likely a bipartisan uh, vote uh, for anything re- re- regarding uh, those kinds of issues and that's what Joe Manchin has pushed for. Uh, Kirsten Sinema, uh his colleague from Arizona is supportive of HR1 s1 uh, but not obviously uh, blowing up the filibuster because of that she was asked this week again about that and, and declined uh, to, to uh, you know talk about blowing up the filibuster so uh, these kinds of non-financial, related issues to certainly have to have some kind of bipartisan support to clear that 60 vote market
4: yeah I, I had to raise this because I really just want to know ultimately how many school gyms or parking facilities are going to be named the the Joseph mansion the uh, third gymnasium or, or parking uh, parking structure by the way guys I, I had to mention uh, it, as Charlie Pellet did in the update earlier, uh, the death of F. Lee Bailey, who is the defense attorney, uh, you know, the the actually the headline on the Bloomberg terminal is F. Lee Bailey, defender of the famous and notorious, dies uh, at 87. He had clients such as O.J. Simpson. Uh, had to had to touch on this. Rick, can you sum up uh, how how is this? How is he going to be remembered? I think probably a legacy dominated by the Simpson trial. Uh, But can you reflect on, on, uh, I mean, this seems like something that clearly a person who was sort of dominant in the zeitgeist uh, to some extent in in the 90s. What are your thoughts uh, of this news? Jack, you're so right. I mean,
2: I grew up with F. Lee Bailey. I mean, he was uh, an important public figure from the time I started watching the evening news with my parents. Uh, he 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 was notorious too. You described it just perfectly because the first instance that I recall of him, he was he was uh, representing the commander of a military unit that that did something that has been settled to history called the Melee massacre in vietnam in 1968 and 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 american soldiers killed 500 villagers one day and and the commander was put for trial and and guess who his lawyer was f lee bailey everybody deserved a good lawyer and f lee bailey was 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 taking a very unpopular stand uh by representing this commander and yet made enormous amount of uh press and attention uh, in, that, in that case. And it and, and only went from there. I mean, you don't have to look very far in history to see his fingerprints on almost every one of the really high profile uh, legal cases uh, uh, throughout the, the next five decades. And so his, his loss is an end of an era. Uh, and, and maybe a lot of people will say that's one era that we just as soon forget about.
4: Right, right. It, I think the end of an era. It's hard to sum up uh, the legacy, but the the end of an era. Uh, whether you're, you're you've got positive or negative feelings, uh, very significant. Had to raise that. By the way, I, I want to touch on one other thing that came up today. Earlier today, uh, the president announced he is signing an order blocking the investment in 59 companies tied to China's military. This is a, an amendment of a Trump move, uh, but actually an expansion of the number of, of companies blocked. They were relying on one report by DOD. Now the Treasury will do another report. This affects, obviously, I think, unsurprisingly, companies like Huawei, major telecom companies in China. Kevin, I, I want to get your take on, it actually seems like Biden ended up being more uh, of a, a China hawk in this move than Trump was with the initial move, where at least it's more companies affected. Is that the result, in your mind, is that the result of some sort of political pressure on Biden? He, he seems to face a lot of pressure not backing down on China. What, what's the logic that you think went into this kind of move?
8: Yeah, it's a good question, uh, Jack. And, of course, it builds on the, um, the executive order um, by the, the previous administration under Donald Trump. Uh, you know, China is actually something that actually unites Republicans and Democrats. Uh, we're seeing, you know, Marco Rubio. Mark Kelly, Liz Cheney in a letter, uh, you know, pushing the administration to do more uh, in terms of identifying these companies as part of this order. Uh, And it could be a a rare kind of strike of bipartisanship aside from these ongoing conversations on infrastructure uh, with the China question. Uh, And it's, you know, not just in terms of uh, military uh, um, investments, but obviously the president has raised the issue of human rights. You know, you're seeing the administration, you know, speak out a bit more in terms of the origins of of COVID-19. So again,
4: this is kind of an
8: interesting issue because- Again, it's one of these rare kind of bipartisan moments that we're seeing play out with support of the administration.
4: Yeah. Rick, were you surprised by that? And, uh, you know, I'm, I'm curious, I know there, there was the thought that the original Trump move may not have had uh, a lot of legal backing and it could have been struck down in court and maybe uh, doing this new report through Treasury solidifies it legally. But Biden probably could have uh, gone with something similar, a similar number of companies rather rather than a, a significant increase in, in companies getting investment blocked, Chinese companies. Uh, what, do you, what What's your, your reasoning here for, for this move by Biden, Rick?
2: Yeah, some of, the, some of it is exactly what you described, Jack. I mean, a move to try and perfect the legal language. Uh, I think court, a court had uh, uh, either put pressure on or thrown out a couple of the designations because they didn't fit a, a, a court requirement. Legal requirement. So uh, some of it was to perfect that, and some of it was to send a message, right? That 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 our policy is going to be consistent uh, with China. He's not going to, uh, uh, President Biden's not going to get soft on China all of a sudden. uh, Which was a criticism that the president uh, labeled on him uh, during the campaign.
4: Right. If we're going to end things on a lighter note, I just, this is uh, too strange not to mention. Uh, AP reported today, a New Mexico sheriff who's running for mayor of Albuquerque was interrupted on stage at a campaign event by a flying drone with, uh, let's say, an adult toy attached to it and also a man who punched him. Uh, Have you guys seen anything stranger when the lead doesn't even lead with the guy getting punched uh, at a campaign event? Uh, Can you guys think of anything, Rick, have you seen anything stranger than that in your career?
2: No, and if you want to find strange things, always focus on the sheriff's race because they are the most interesting races in any state.
4: Oh, well, I moved to D.C. from Maricopa County, Arizona, so I have to have to agree with you on uh, sheriff politics. Guys, that's, that's just about it for us on a, a Thursday afternoon. Thank you again to former Ambassador to Israel Daniel Kurtzer for joining us and walking through everything happening in Israel. Rick Davis, Bloomberg Politics contributor. Kevin Walling, thank you for joining us a democratic strategist at HG Creative Media. That's it for me. I'm Jack Fitzpatrick. This is Bloomberg.